Hey everybody, welcome to the spoiler edition or companion podcast for episode 501 of HBO's Game of Thrones series entitled The Wars to Come. If you are not up current to the books or if you are not adverse or if you are adverse to being spoiled on anything to come on Game of Thrones or potential theories or speculation on what might be to come from a book reader's point of view, then I suggest you turn this podcast off now. We'll have the instant cast for the next episode up Sunday night, and we'll have our regular cast on Tuesdays. But we started to separate the spoiler casts over uh, to Friday to give me a little bit more time to work them up, to give time uh, people time to send emails for spoiler speculations and theories and stuff like that. So I hope I've uh, killed enough time that uh, people that are not want to be spoiled can can shut the uh, shut the pa- their podcaster off right now. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Going to consider some spoiler feedback, and then we'll have at the end of the episode the latest tinfoil theory edition, which considers the relationship between Varys and Illyrio that uh, we were touched on in the episodes. I thought it was kind of appropriate to revisit that. But let's get to the feedback first. Javon W. emailed in and said, you probably received quite a few emails about this, but on a spoiler preview episode, you misread in reader's email. He was talking about how the actor who plays Tommen was the same actor who played William Lan- or Willem Lan- Lannister in season two. You are correct, sir. I screwed that up. And... When I was reading the email, I almost thought to myself, self, you should look this actor's name up to make sure that you are not incorrect. But I decided to go with my gut, and my gut was wrong. I forgot that they recycled that actor, which I can see why it would confuse a a lot of different people. So you uh, are correct. I did get a lot of emails. You were the first one that sent one in, so thanks for the correction. And we'll move on to the next one. James F., is Sansa Lady Stoneheart? Do you think you've t- they've taken the Lady Stoneheart story and plot and given all that material to Sansa? That is an interesting question. I'm kind of in the camp that thinks the Double Ds might be misinforming the fan base. And, and maybe that's wishful thinking, but I really hope they still do have Lady Stoneheart in the series going forward. But we'll have to see. Uh, I'm going to suspend that, and I know I know they've publicly stated that they are cutting out Lady Stoneheart and a bunch of other stuff, but I, I still hold out hope that maybe uh, they are just uh, joshing with us or they're just deliberately misinforming us. But let's proceed as if they are not going to have a Lady Stoneheart and proceed with the knowledge that they're going to have Jamie off in Dorne, uh, replacing some uh, Eris Oakhart and uh, Balin Swan's storylines. And we don't quite know what they're going to do with Sansa and Brienne. So what is Lady Stoneheart's chief objective If you in, in the books? If you set aside all the Grand Northern conspiracy stuff and all that, she essentially is a quest giver to Brienne to 
somehow bring Jamie Lannister to justice, and which obviously sets up a lot of uh, conflict for Brienne that we haven't even got to in the books yet. And that's essentially her role. So could Sansa take that place? I guess my answer is yes, and it actually makes a lot of logical sense. Brienne needs an objective. It seems like one thing to do is have her to go after Sansa. Uh, if she does catch up to Sansa, um, you know, again, we don't know where she's going or what exactly she's going to be doing there. But we also know Sansa is a different character than the girl we met in the beginning of the series, both in the books and the television show. She's a little bit harder. She's a little wiser. She's certainly a lot stronger and more savvy. Uh, but we also know she has a lot of bitterness when it comes to the Lannisters. I could see where if they gave, you know, Sansa Lady Stoneheart's streak or, or her thirst for vengeance and Brienne finds Sansa and says, I'm to recover you and then do what with you? I mean, there's no, I'm, I guess, protect you. Maybe Sansa says, I don't need your protection, but what you could do is uh, go after the Lannisters for me. And she's, you know, or maybe she sees that she's got a Lannister sword and she says, you have to go kill Jamie to prove your loyalty towards me. Assuming that Brienne has some part to play on the Stark or the quote unquote good side of Game of Thrones, that would be one way to go about it and kind of preserve the integrity of what Brienne is supposed to be doing in the books. Uh, I feel like if that's a possibility, we're going to know it's, you know, certainly in the second half of this season, if not sooner, if, uh, you know, Brienne and Sansa don't meet before the end of the season, then I'd guess this theory is kind of kaput, but I think that that's a strong possibility there, James moving on to Janine, the dragon Walker. Uh, she's referencing the reincarnated dragons theory. We talked about from the preview podcast. She says, I too like this one a lot. I think though that the reincarnation is completely unintentional. If the Magi knew she could come back as a dragon, she might have betrayed Daenerys far sooner. Heck, if I could come back as a dragon, I'd fall on a sword pretty damn quick as well. That is, if I was living in the Red Waste as they were at the time. So, if we assume Drogo as Drogon, then yes, definitely. In the books, Drogon is the largest and seemingly fiercest of the dragons, so it makes sense that Drogo would inhabit him. Plus, as we learned in a world of ice and fire, dragons only bond with one writer at a time. That was also in one of the Song of Ice and Fire books as well. I just don't recall which one. Several people might ride a dragon over its life, but only one at a time. Or to be more specific, the dragon's only going to bond to one at a time. Viserion, the cream and gold dragon, was always the one who wanted to curl up with Daenerys and be close to her like a child. Uh, even in the pit in the Dance of Dragons, he tried to reach her and be close to her. He sniffed out the woman in the party that came to free and kill the dragons looking for his mother. This screams with the theory that Rego is the white dragon. So that leaves Rhaegal. In the books, this dragon was always just sort of there doing what a young dragon does. But he does attack Viserion several times over food and such, and it's always those two are playing or fighting together. I'm not sure he equates to the mad guy, but at the very least he's neutral, which she would be had she not been crossed. It is hard to fit the Magi into this reincarnated dragons theory. I, I guess this her being a neutral is a new thought to me because I always thought she's an antagonist to Danny. Maybe that it won't be until the dragon reaches full maturity. 
that uh, because, you know, I don't think that this woman was necessarily anti Danny until she was captured by a bunch of Dothraki and and her village burned and everyone she loved and cared about killed and her personally raped. So maybe there has to be something, uh, a transformative experience that uh, Rhaegon has to go through before he slash she will turn against Danny. But on the other hand, you know, the dragons have three heads, they have three dragons. I th- that's the big problem I have with that is if the dragon is one of uh or the mad guy is in one of the dragons, then it kind of puts that dragon in opposition to the other two, and I'm not sure how that would actually work out uh in terms of plot, but I'd love to hear anyone's theory on that. So moving on to other points, it's a it's it's a given that Danny is one of the dragon riders. Uh, is going to be one of the writers of the Three Dragons. She already has claimed Drogon by the end of Dance of Dragons. Who are the other two dragon writers then? Book readers would probably have Tyrion and Aegon writing Viserion and Rhaegon respectively, but I'd switch that though. However, for show followers, who the hell knows? I do think Tyrion will be writing a dragon before this is all over, but who knows as well. I think Tyrion, I'm a big believer uh, in Tyrion as kind of a secret targ. Uh, as we talked about in the previous uh, tinfoil sections from last season. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I will keep a link to the forum topic where it kind of has an archive for all of these spoiler sections or all the tinfoil sections. So if you hear me refer to a past tinfoil section, you can go to the show notes, click that link and scroll through, find the topic and it takes you to the time code for the podcast you need to listen to, to, uh, uh, find that episode. But I, I do believe Tyrion is going to definitely be one of the dragon riders. And I think I'm going to take that theory back down and refurbish it because a couple of people have made some really good points to kind of bolster that. I also think if, if R uh, plus L equals J is correct, which I think 99.9% of fandom believes that means John is a Targaryen, and I think it would be really cool. And this is very fanboy. This is probably very naive. But it'd be very cool to see Daenerys, Tyrion, and uh, Jon Snow team up. And that would kind of be... of the, uh, of uh, It'd be one person from a house that we kind of despise, but he's the one member. And I know Jamie has his fans too, but he's the one member that seems to be a fan favorite. It takes uh, kind of redeems some of the Stark's power and also has a traditional Targaryen. And I kind of like that symmetry. Uh, these are all fairly broadly protagonist heroic characters from the book standard. They're all still alive and they all have a claim to be uh, the, the, be a possible dragon rider. But we'll have to see. Probably still a season or two away and, and, and maybe even a book away before we even get to that. Dana L. said, I wanted to get your take on the GRRM, or GERM, as I like to call him, fueled rumor regarding the season five death of a character who is still alive in the books. My initial instinct is Theon. First of all, let me comment on that, that there was an interview where he said there are going to be people that die in the uh, TV show that are still alive in the books. And we already have several examples of that from uh, Grin and a few of other John uh, friends of Jon Snow, and we've seen other minor characters who are dead. I mean, if we, again, take the double Ds at their words, Lady Stoneheart is dead, dead. So I don't know that this has to be a big thing, like, oh, my God, Theon. Um, 
it could be a lot more subtler. He could just be kind of poking fun at us and talking about fairly minor characters. Um, for example, maybe Ariel Hota uh, gets killed by Jamie instead of him killing, I presume, Jamie, if they're doing the remix plot line uh, with Jamie down in Dorne. So it could be as minor as that. Anyway, they continue... My initial instinct is Theon. If they end up downplaying the Ramsay and fake Arya wedding plot, it seems like his character may have outlived his usefulness by the season's end. Going off of some speculations you brought up during the last cast, if the manse and bard part of the wedding plot gets cut out, Theon may get killed during the rescue attempt and ultimately become a subject of Ramsay's letter to Jon Snow, the infamous pink letter. That being said, I have a more tinfoil death theory that could end up being, oh shit, red wedding moment that this season is missing. If Jamie does indeed subbing in for Sir Eris Oakhart and Dorne, what if the Double Ds pull a Kirkman remix and decide to kill off everyone's favorite sisterfucker? If they end up sacking Lady Stoneheart, it's possible Jamie's plot has nowhere else to go. I realize that's some wild speculation, but if you like that theory, you love my Kirkmanized version of Breaking Bad, the harrowing story of the rise to power of dirty cop turned meth kingpin Steve Gomez. Uh, I quite enjoy that, actually, Dana. I love the theory of Jamie getting killed down there in Dorne. Uh, that is mutually incompatible with Sansa as Stoneheart sending Brian after Jamie. Although I guess not, because it's not like Brian has to know about this stuff. And hell, she goes on a lot of fool's quests in the books as well. But I like that. Um, I I kind of see a further remix here with Jamie while we're on the subject of blending. Uh, Eris Oakhart and Balin Swan together into one character. So instead of being a guy uh, who is sent with the, uh, unless unless it's uh, instead of being a guy who's sent down there to investigate the attack on Marcella, maybe they blend a little bit of that where he's sent down there to check on Marcella by Cersei uh, to make sure that she's safe. And there is a seduction plot and there is a tempt on her life. And again, if I want to suggest a remix of my own, maybe Ariel Hota uh, gets killed in the defense of Marcella and Jamie survives. I haven't really thought through how that would impact the rest of the plot. Um, and honestly, the further we deviate from the book material, it's going to get harder and harder to kind of keep all those plates spinning. But I could see that working. I think that would be interesting. You get the best part of both of the knights, the, the Kingsguard's uh, missions, and kind of like remix them all together. Moving on from Stephen, uh, an email from Stephen from Florida. Just want to start off saying that I've not read the books, but I love hearing the spoiler section since I know it's going to be different from the books. It makes the show more enjoyable to me. After listening to your first spoiler episode for season five, I came up with two predictions. A bold move, Stephen, throwing caution to the wind with spoilers. You said that Jamie's story is going to change in the show by going to Dorne instead of wherever he goes in the books which is a tour of the Riverlands to bring them all into the king's peace. My friend who has read the book says Jamie takes the role of a kingsman, or I think he means king's guard, who went with Marcella when she went was sent away with Tyrion, or by Tyrion. That was back in, in uh, season two of the show. Since you said you're not sure what the writers can do with him, maybe he gets killed off for shock value. A lot of people gunning for Jamie this week. I don't know every character's name, so I'm not going to try to confuse you and myself and explain or go deeper in this theory. It's a wild guess, and it might need to be placed with the mermaid theories, but with such a huge remix HBO's doing, it would add great shock value to kill off Jamie for the readers and viewers. 
Also, I know the mountain becomes some Frankenstein death monster, and if the HBO says it's too much money to bring back the actress for Lady Stoneheart, maybe they combine the two characters. I don't really know the roles in the books, but it might be more cost-efficient if they combine a zombie with a Frankenstein's monster. Well, it's probably... They've got to bring somebody back to life, and by they, I don't mean just anyone, because Kyburn, I don't think, is using uh, the Lord of the Light magic to... uh, bring back uh, Gregor Clegane. I think if they don't, I mean, writing Lady Stoneheart out of the TV series, if I go back and say, let's pretend that's going to happen. What is the point of bringing Beric Dondarrion and even introduce the concept of that at all? I feel like that by saying they're not going to do Lady Stoneheart, they are really, really heavily hinting that a lot of the popular speculation about Jon Snow uh, we know he gets murdered at the end of Dance of Dragons, that he is going to, through somehow some combination of warging and uh, Lord of the Light magic, going to be brought back by Melisandre. And there's a whole bunch of ripple effects from that, you know, that's just in- intriguing. Uh, by dying, he's fulfilled his oath, arguably, to the Night's Watch, which would mean he could hold lands and titles, which means he could be the King of the North. It means he could... Uh, be Danny's brother, sister, wife, husband, whatever freaky Targaryen relationship they got going on. Cousin, aunt. I what 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 is what would their relationship be? Uh, that would be brother son. That would be her nephew, I guess. So nephew, aunt, fucking. So he could sit on the Iron Throne or rule, co-rule her as uh, some sort of uh, consort, royal consort. So that's all pretty exciting. And again, if they're not bringing back Lady Stoneheart, then what else, who else are they going to be bringing back to life? You got to start thinking about stuff like that. Because again, I think to the extent that, uh, you know, Robert Strong factors into this season, we should get some notes on that. Because as Jim pointed out in the non-spoiler cast, he's very curious about where uh, they were doing, what what they're doing with uh, Gregor. And, you know, what are all these hints leading up to? We'll probably see some, I imagine, scenes of Kyburn down in the dungeons and screaming in the backgrounds, and maybe they're working on a suit of armor. Who knows? Luke B. says he's writing about possible remixes coming this season. It looks like major departures in the book are coming. We have Davos at the wall, and I think Mance is really dead. Combine this with the Bolton changes, and I think the entire Winterfell plot is being remixed. I'd be surprised if we even get to the phrase in Manderley's. Yeah, that's what I mean about the book being more complex and richer and more realistic from a real politics standpoint. The show is going to be maybe more fast-paced and more streamlined and more, you know, A, then B, so then that follows C. But if the cost is we lose Lady Stoneheart and we lose the Grand Northern Conspiracy or even... Eliminate the Grand Northern Conspiracy, but the the plot of the Manderley is still being loyal to the Starks, and the Mummers' farce about to be over. All that stuff. It's you know we'll be slightly the poorer for it, I believe. But continuing, it looks like with Varys joining Tyrion, they're fast tracking in the Marine, uh, which means no Aegon. I also have seen no mention of Quentin Martell, so it looks like all of the Dorne plot is going to be changed. Which begs the question: What is the Dorne plot? If there is no Quentin Martell to send over to betroth himself to Danny and get himself fried, uh, and there is no Aegon, is there's no pact about putting anybody on the throne, 
if this was all about Danny, then Dorn's plotline is simply about revenge, and there's not whole, a whole lot of intrigue down there. So, you know, my eyebrows shoot way up at that that thought. One remix I see coming is Dario freeing Danny's dragons and getting roasted instead of Quentin. This was, in my opinion, being set up in their dialogue from this episode. He seems really interested in those dragons. That is a really, really solid plot, uh, idea. I like that. I like that. And that would kind of galvanize Danny into get, getting her shit together about, uh, you know, opening up these fighting pits because, you know, Dario wanted it to happen and Dario died and she feels bad about it. Also, it light a fire in her ass about getting control of those dragons because nobody else is going to do it for her. And it would result in the death of someone that she cared about. This brings you to the last major change I see, uh, Luke continues. I know the whole Euron is Dario tinfoil theory is popular. That might be a tinfoil podcast. If I get around to doing like a ridiculous identity roundup, like the various Euron and Dario and Benjen, Stark, crazy theories, that would be a, a fun one to do. But anyway, he says, I think this can be officially debunked. Clearly, we have no King's Moot this late in the game. I think at most we'll get a throwaway line or scene wrapping up Balon Greyjoy's death, and that will be it. So that's, a, I mean, I've never made it a secret that I don't really care about the Ironborn plotline and the King's Moot and all of that stuff, really. I'm only interested in it uh, as to what it means for Theon and kind of more to the point, what it means for the Boltons going forward and how ultimately their demise will be met. I'm assuming that it gets met. So eliminating the King's moot to me is a super easy change. And I guess if we don't see any more Ironborn aside from Theon going forward the season, then we can pretty much think we can pretty much see the Iron Islanders as being a, a pardon a pun moot point that we won't see again for the rest of the series. And it also kind of gives us a hint that a lot of the stuff in the books involving them is probably a red herring as far as how the plot's going to go down, which I believe anyway. I don't believe the Victorian is going to make it across to Essos and woo Danny and be one of her, one of her husbands, um, unless it's one of the ones that fulfills the prophecy and that she, he'll be killed or she'll murder him and to make way for her true love. But we'll see. My rating buddy, Tyler Shum, says, I thought the Cersei flashback was great, and I was super surprised we got it so early in the season. I thought it was the perfect intro to the Cersei versus Marjorie dynamic that will likely be featured heavily this season. Do you think we'll get to see more of that flashback later? I think the Valonqar stuff is a useful way to explain why she hates Tyrion so much, but it would be much harder for the show to explain her thought process in that particular prophecy. Plus, her Tyrion paranoia isn't going to be super necessary going forth in the season, so I'm guessing we're done with the flashbacks. I don't know, man. I think there's actually a really elegant way. And I was talking with some people on the forums uh, and kind of worked this theory out. But you'll note that this vision flashback kind of ended literally in the middle of things. We're kind of zooming in on young Cersei's face. Her friend is there saying, we got to go. We got to go. There's a drop of blood that hits the ground. What I think would be cool is in if a few episodes, you know, we get it, we get this presented as a dream sequence where she gets to hear the rest of this prophecy about the Valonqar um, strangling her, and then we see 
like Cersei is remembering this dream and we think that she's just, you know, uh, maybe she wakes up from a dream. Maybe she's having a dream. We see this as a dream sequence. She wakes up and then in the shadows, like Tyrion's face is looming over her. And then she screams and has like that double wake up effect, you know, if, 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 if that wouldn't be cheesy. Or she could be having, um, you know, a dream of having this flashback of the second half of the prophecy in the, the witch hut in the woods. And then somehow that dissolves into a scene of Marcella playing in Dorne. And then Tyrion is kind of leering over that scene. And then she screams and wakes up. But I could see like some com- com- combination of dream sequence and Tyrion kind of jump scare that could get us as the audience really inside her her paranoia that she's worrying about this phantom threat and from her standpoint for good reason why she's ignoring all these other things crashing down among around her ears and i think that would be uh, a good way to add a little bit of depth to cersei which the show has done really well i mean book cersei is very one note right look how awesome i am look at what a conquering queen i am how regal i am if only my father could see me wielding this power as king's landing is literally burning around her and the sparrows are taking over everything uh and she's being held tr- i mean on, on trial for uh by the by the sparrows for her violations of many violations of the faith of the seven so i think that'd be pretty cool uh, moving back on to Shum's point, said, I surprisingly sad at the absence of Jorah and Marine. Hopefully gets introduced to Tyrion's story soon. I think that's a very good bet. Uh, we know from the trailers uh, that definitely Jorah is coming back. Obviously, we know from the books he is too. Uh, I'm kind of curious about how they introduce, because there's a lot of stuff in the Tyrion that's kind of boring, or not boring, but you know, there's a whole lot of like, you know, meditation on where do whores go? And a lot of the stuff uh, about him being, you know, experiencing for the first time what it means to be a dwarf without any advantages of being a rich Lannister, uh, which is kind of interesting. But, you know, him being bought um, and him serving in that kind of freak show camp and then getting the pale mare. I mean, a lot of that stuff is just drudgery. So... I think it would be interesting if they just cut right to the point and Varys, uh, Varys and him present himself to Danny as potential advisors, and then she can debate, uh, you know, whether or not to keep him or believe him, or maybe she gets pissed because they're all part of the Usurper's Council, and she throws him into a fighting pit, and Jor is able to protect her, protect them from dying for I don't know why he would do that. I guess because he has a previous relationship with Varys. And Varys is a smooth talker, and they decide to team up in the pits, and in the middle of all that, Drogon comes and starts fucking shit up. That could be kind of interesting and crazy. Um, but I see a much more streamlined path uh, to get all these guys back to interacting with Danny than what we see in the book. He continues, I was not expecting to see that last scene at the wall, not only because they seem to have burned the real Mance Raider, but also because they did it before Jon Snow becomes Lord Commander. His mercy arrow may have more serious consequences because of this. Agreed. Uh, as I mentioned, I believe in the last spoiler section I did, I was really thinking that we would see them burn Rattleshirt somehow and that he would be protesting. I'm not the king. I'm not the king. I The way they staged this and filmed it, 
there's some people that said they thought they could see in the looks, the significant looks that Tormund and Mance were giving each other, that maybe they were supposed to hint that they're that they're, they have done the old Melisandre bait and switch. But personally, the way they staged that, I think that was just like, you know, as Jim said, it's it's identical to the looks that uh, Mel Gibson's Braveheart guy was given his men before he got his guts torn out and his uh, and hung and stretched and beheaded and all the other awful shit they put him through. So me personally, I would feel like I got double double fooled because I already know about the subterfuge in the books and then they're acting like that didn't happen. And then surprise book readers, it actually did happen. And I think there's going to be a lot of people scratching their heads and what the fucking about that. And as the previous emailer pointed out, we don't really need uh, the whole bard plot. If they're going to be streamlining the fake Arya and Winterfell plot, which they probably will end up doing. That's one thing I didn't mention about uh, Littlefinger and Sansa in the main cast, obviously, what if Littlefinger is taking her to the Boltons and Winterfell uh, to marry her off to Ramsay to consolidate his power in, in the kingdoms? Littlefinger is a son of a bitch, but he also has a weird love affair with Sansa. So I don't see him willingly give away, giving her away. But then again, I don't know where else they're riding to West unless he's taking her up to the, t- to the wall. Uh, to protect her and then Brienne they kind of hinted that maybe that she would go to the wall and they'd meet up there but again I don't see Littlefinger putting his trust into the Black Brothers either I'm super curious about where they are going with that anyway I got a little bit distracted because Tyler mentions this next where the hell are Littlefinger and Sansa going I have no idea what Littlefinger's plan is here he says he doesn't trust the Lords of the Vale but where could they possibly go that's safer than the Eyrie he also says they're going somewhere so far away that Cersei can't get her hands on Sansa. I really can't see them going to Winterfell. There's no way Littlefinger trusts the Boltons, and he knows they are occupying it. And if he doesn't, is he planning on rebuilding Winterfell and revealing Elaine as signs of Stark, the rightful heir? It would make more sense for him to try and gather some allies first. Maybe they'll take Davos' role in the books and go to White Harbor. Lord Manderly could even pretend to kill Sansa, though it would make more sense for him to use Sansa as a rallying point for the North. After all, that's why he sent Davos to find Rickon in the first place. It'd also be interesting to see Littlefinger and Sansa seek Howland Reed as an ally and go to Greywater Watch. They might even run into Rickon, Asha, and Shaggy Dog, although finding Rickon would be an interesting wrinkle in Littlefinger's plans to make Sansa the heir to Winterfell. Also... How would Littlefinger know how to find Howland Reed? Like, I'm pretty sure the the Reeds uh, are not wanting to be found by a guy like Littlefinger unless he's literally walk, marching through the swamps in the neck saying, I've got Sansa Stark. I've got the Sans. I mean, I, I, I don't see how he would not end up just getting shot with poison arrows, you know? But yeah, I, I don't really get where they're going with Sansa, but that's kind of cool. I also have no idea what they're doing with Brienne and Pod this season. I'm going to have to give you a little bit of dry pie there, Tyler, because I feel like we've talked enough about that. Um, let's see. Talked a little bit about Lady Stoneheart, which I think we addressed as well. So let's just move on to the next emailer, Mark P. Says, I binge watched the HBO series last fall and have since read the books. Congratulations. That's a lot of Game of Thrones you've been mainlining. I also just found your podcast in the last few weeks and have binge listened to your season four and five casts. All that being said, I may be late to the show, but I haven't heard many theories about Varys. 
It seems to me that he and Varys are pulling the strings to direct the course of Westeros. I understand Littlefinger's motivations, but Varys is less clear, which leads me to my Varys conspiracy theory. To me, Varys is clearly a faceless man, and I do not believe the backstory we have is a lie. I think it's just incomplete. I think there are several things to back him up as a faceless man. We know of him as also the drag dungeon guard from his visits to Ned. We also see him showing up to kill Kevin Lannister and Ma- Meister Pycelle Pys- uh, in Dance of Dragons. I think there are also clues from his backstory and things Arya is doing with her training. So if he is a faceless man, who is paying him? My thought is he has been a plant from the Iron Bank. They have to get the reputation of it being really bad not to repay their loans from somewhere. Varys' motivation so far just seems very weak to me. I have nothing... We have nothing to tell us he has fierce loyalty to the Targaryens. To stretch it even further, could Varys also be Jack and Hagar? And knowing he couldn't help Ned, who he respected, he has decided to help Arya. I may be way on a limb, but I'd be interested to see if you flesh this out in some of the same ways I have, or if you can fill in this rabbit hole for me and I can quit chasing this in particular. I do find it funny that we're all consumed with these theories that have nothing to do with the White Walkers, who will make all the politics and intrigue pointless when they come over the wall. I don't know if they'll make it pointless. Uh, I think it'll definitely focus people's priorities in a hurry. But I think that what we're seeing, these kind of fault lines in power are going to be very uh, crucial. I think you're basically seeing the vain and prideful and selfish ambitions of power kind of lining up on one side of the table. And then you've got the altruistic, perhaps naive, Uh, but morally strong characters lining up on the other side of the divide. And I think when the White Walkers come, what you're going to see is, um, depending, again, how positive Martin is, which is, you know, I guess we'll have to see. But I think what you'll see is the pressure of that is going to really test the more fragile, selfish, pride, uh, ambition-based factions and they're going to crumble under this stress, and they're not going to be able to stand where the more altruistic ones are going to be able to stand the test uh, and rally the people and beat back the forces of winter and introduce a dream of of spring. We'll see. In particular, Varys. I guess I don't understand why you don't necessarily buy Varys' motivations. Uh, He's a patriot. He is in a position that he, because of the the hand fate has dealt him, uh, unlike... I mean, he's, you can kind of see him as a flip side of Littlefinger, and maybe that's maybe they are exactly the same sort of person, except for Varys had the misfortune of having his cock and balls taken off. Now, there are theories that there there is more to that. In fact, we're about to consider one. But if you just take it as its face value, this is a man who cannot inherit titles and cannot sit on the Iron Throne. So the height of his ambition is basically to make sure that the realm is being run in an efficient and peaceful way so that instead of like a little finger, who's trying to get glory for himself, he's essentially trying to make sure that what happened to him and the circumstances that found him as a boy being sold into slavery and having his manhood torn out can never happen to anybody else. I feel like that's a fairly good that that's actually a really really good motivation and it's kind of singular in game of thrones because you know even our noble characters like the johns and eds and robs at the world still buy into this very feudal uh you know the the might makes right and varus is yes but what if the mighty actually gave a damn about the little folk and what if i mean he's essentially a liberal right so 
I like that viewpoint in Game of Thrones. I don't have a problem with buying that as a as a motivation. Uh, as far as him being a faceless man, in particular Jack and Hagar, I don't see how that can possibly be because it would essentially require him to be in two places at once throughout a lot of season two uh, and even season and even season one. You know, Varys is in the King's Landing throughout all this stuff while Jack and Hagar is in a wagon or in the Black Cells. Uh, so, okay, maybe he can get in and out of the Black Cells, no problem. But he's on a wagon going north on the King's Road. He then is, is sitting in Hall with Arya. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of space between Hall and King's Landing. And I don't think the Faceless Men are magic in the sense that they can, like, apparate places uh, and turn into bats or shroud a mist and fly over. I mean, that's... That's getting into the Roose Bolton theory uh, of being a vampire a little bit too much for me. So, yeah, I, I, I don't buy that part of it. Um, but certainly, is, is, is there more to Varys than what meets the eye? I think that's entirely plausible. And that brings us to our tinfoil theory of the week, which is a weird one. I actually recorded this uh, on Thursday night. I'm uh, talking to you now early Friday morning. I was editing it last night, and I'm like, man, this doesn't really hang together. I didn't give enough detail in the background to hang my points on that I'm trying to put in the spoiler theory. So uh, since it's such a big one, and it requires a lot of details gathered from nearly all of the source books, and, and even some from the, uh, the, uh, the World of Ice and Fire and some of the historical documents around the Black Fires and whatnot... I decided to split this up into two, and this week is going to be the background information, the setup, if you will, and next week will be the tinfoil theory. Uh, this was suggested by JT from Wisconsin, uh, and I'm going to give him uh, credit and probably read more of his message next week after I get the setup part over with. But I'm going to call this the Tale of the Mummers Dragons, and this is part one of it. We let's let's talk about what we know about Varys. Meister Pycelle tells Ned in Game of Thrones that Varys was born a slave in Lys. However, Varys himself tells Tyrion that he was born an orphan boy, apprenticed to a traveling folly. Varys traveled with this mummers group throughout Essos, which explains Varys' skill in costuming and disguises. And at some point in his childhood, or perhaps early teens, Varys was sold to a warlock in Myrrh. Cut root and stem, completely castrated, and then discarded and left to die. This is where Varys, of course, gets his famous hatred for magic from. Desperate and hungry, Varys begins his career as a thief in Mir, after first resorting to begging and selling his body for money. Apparently, he is rather too successful. He quickly learns to be a very good thief, and eventually makes uh, some powerful enemies in Mir. So he's forced to flee to another of the free cities, Pintos. There, he becomes friends with Illyrio, who at the time was a down-on-his-luck and rather poor sellsword. Now, these next part comes from Illyrio's relections to... Uh, this next part comes from Illyrio's recollections to Tyrion, but I don't have any doubt... I don't have any reason to doubt that it's true. They come up with a scheme where Varys steals valuables from the lesser thieves of Pentos. Then Illyrio, as a sellsword, would find the original owners and claim that he could retrieve their possessions for a small fee. This caused a stir in Underworld, as half the thieves in Pentos lined up to ultimately try and fail 
to kill the Illyrio and Varys team. And the other half got wise and started fencing the things they stole right to Varys as an attempt to cut out the middleman of him just stealing from them and they get nothing. By consolidating the city's thieves and profiting from them, the both together grew very rich. But that's not the end of the story, because Varys theorized that the rich and powerful would pay handsomely for the safe return of their valuables. How much more would they pay to keep their secrets safe? So to that end, he started training an army of spies. He'd go to the slave yards and to the orphanages and pick out the smallest, quickest, and quietest children to buy or adopt. Then he'd train them to read and write, as well as all of his considerable thieving skills. They were then able to creep up walls and down chimneys, copy account ledgers, diaries, private messages, and sneak back out without detection. Selling these on the open market soon made Varys and Illyrio ten times as rich as they were before. As the legend of the spider of Pintos grew, King Eris the Mad, uh, the king that is immediately preceded King Robert in the rebellion, he heard of him all the way over on King's Landing. He had grown more and more paranoid as the madness overtook him, and he no longer trusted his hand, his wife, or anyone of his family, and he wanted a foreign, powerful spymaster who would be loyal to him and him alone. Now, we know this is certainly before Robert's Rebellion. We don't know exactly how much earlier, but it's definitely before the fateful tourney at Harrenhal in the year of the Fall Spring, which is approximately 18 to 20 years before the events of the books. We know that. Because Varys played a hand in arousing King Eris's suspicions that Rhaegar was plotting against him, which prompted him to attend the, the tourney, which is the first time he left King's Landing in a very long time. Varys thrived in King's Landing, taking advantage of Eris' madness to point out conspirators, even sometimes where none existed, and also using his network of child spy slaves and his knowledge of the secret passageways of the Red Keep that he had painstakingly explored and mapped out in his early years at King's Landing. Many, such as Sir Barristan, Stannis, and Jaime, actually blamed Varys for increasing the king's paranoia and, mani and manipulating him. But despite that, Varys did on occasion give him good counsel, such as when he said not to open King's Landing to uh, Lord Tywin Lannister's armies during the rebellion. As we know, that ended poorly for Eris, and uh, the city was sacked, and his entire royal line put to the sword. Robert... Therefore, pardons Varys because of his uh, use as master of spies and allowed him to keep his position as master of secrets, rather, in the new regime. And it seems that Varys was entrusted with making at least some arrangements to care for Robert's many bastards. Stannis tells Davos that Varys is the one who would frequently send gifts to Edric Storm at Storm's End. The books also tell us that Gendry got his apprenticeship with the master armorer when an unknown lord wearing a disguise showed up and paid for his apprentice fee. Most people, uh, most book readers normally assume that this is Varys as well. So he's got this role of kind of caring for uh, King Robert's bastards. As we saw this week in the TV show, Varys saw Robert as a disaster and had plans from the beginning to return Tar Targaryens to the Iron Throne. And here's where things get interesting for us book readers. The story goes that Varys stole the young... Aegon, son of Aelia of Dorne, which was Oberyn's sister, and the Prince Rhaegar, and placed him with a peasant, replaced him rather with a, a peasant infant. This fake infant is the one that the mountain killed in his murderous rampage through the royal, royal family. So apparently, 
just to recap, Varys did a switcheroo, stole, uh, he saw the writing on the wall, he saw the the disaster, the, the Lannisters coming. Apparently he is a Targaryen loyalist, and he made arrangements to secret away Aegon and preserve him from the coming destruction. So, he stole Aegon and then planned with Illyrio in secret to ship him away from King's Landing. They also worked together to convince John Connington, who was the former hand of King Aerys, who had fallen out of favor due to the king's par- uh, paranoia. Uh, John Connington was a personal friend of Rhaegar Targaryen. But after the disastrous Robert's Rebellion and after the, the, the Loyalists were defeated, he fled across the Narrow Sea, leaving Westeros to serve under the Golden Company of Sellswords and Essos. Varys uh, contacted him and convinced him to take on the young Aegon as his ward. While in Essos, Aegon was trained to be trained by Connington in, in lordly ways and to learn how to command men and to wield power. By the knight Raleigh Duck Duckfield as a warrior, by the half-maester Halden in the arts and sciences, and by the beautiful Septa Lamour in the ways of morality, compassion, and to be a spiritual man. The aim was to create a perfect king, someone who had the right breeding, the right training, the right temperament to be molded into the perfect ruler that could ascend the Iron Throne when it was ripe for the picking. From King's Landing, Varys continued to prepare Westeros for a new leadership. He pits Ned Stark against the Lannisters. He inflames Robert's paranoia with tales of Targaryens and Essos. But when things proceed too quickly, Illyrio comes to King's Landing, which we see Arya over here in the dungeons, and he tells them that he needs to pump the brakes on this upcoming war because they're not ready over in Essos for this to happen yet. Varys attempts to slow things down by negotiating a deal where Ned could be not pardoned, but take the black and avoid bloodshed, uh, which would inflame the Lords of the North, uh, hoping to delay this out, all-out war by sparing his life. This, of course, fails, and we see war engulf Westeros. Meanwhile, Daenerys has been sold off to Cal Drogo by Illyrio. She now has dragons. Uh, she's well on her way to securing an army. While Aegon, at most, has the Golden Company uh, that he can buy and invade Westeros with. So, with this background, there's a couple questions that springs to mind. What the hell is the actual plan here? It's well and good to train up a king, a boy to be a king from birth, and to hide them and protect him, but what's the plan for actually having an invading force? Why are Varys and Ilio working together? There's nothing in their backgrounds other than the fact that they were, uh, you know, poor people and, and from underprivileged uh, castes, uh, parts of society, that would suggest that they have altruistic notions for putting someone on the Iron Throne that would be, you know, uh, serve the weak and the powerless. So what is their motivation? Why are they doing this? Is there more to Varys and Illyrio than meets the eye? How does Viserys and Daenerys fit into this? Was it all an accident? Or are they going to have some part to play to support Aegon? Uh, Was Aegon going to have some uh, uh, plan to support them? What changed when Viserys died? What changed when the dragons died? Did Illyrio intend to have Daenerys uh, have dragons? All these questions and more are things we're going to ponder in the next tinfoil segment, part two of The Mummer's Dragons. Hope you enjoyed this background. Again, uh, 
I thought it was better to have two 10 to 15 minute segments where I could go a little bit deeper than to have one kind of 20 minute segment that wasn't sure all held together and with people would be able to follow it. So remember this background, this refresher on Varys and Illyrio, and we're going to put it to practical use. Go back and look at the original Dance of Dragons and some of the hypothetical backgrounds for Varys and Illyrio, and we'll see what we can come up with next week. Thanks for listening. Again, as always, if you have spoiler feedback, send it to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. Don't worry about Jim seeing it. Only I get Game of Thrones email. Uh, That's our dirty little secret. So uh, it keeps him from being unspoiled. Last year, we tried to just like tell people to uh, keep track of things like a subject, say spoilers and stuff. You don't have to do that anymore because I get it all. I read it all and I'll I'll separate the spoilers from non-spoilers. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't have time this week to do some of the more grandiose things I wanted to do with this segment, such as pipe in audio from some of the books uh, to support some of these passages, which I do think would be better. But with Justified wrapping up and that podcast going long, uh, I just didn't have the time I needed on Wednesday and Thursday to uh, wrap that up. Next week, I shouldn't have any problems in that area. So definitely look to have... uh, and expanded with uh, some cool audio features for the next spoiler cast. And maybe the week after that, I can get around to uh, making uh, an expanded video because some of these things I think are going to require some visual aid. Anyway, again, uh, send me feedback at game of Thrones at baldmove.com. You can also discuss these on the forums where, you know, we can mark things as spoilers and discuss it and not worry about splitting anyone at forums.baldmove.com. And of course, follow along our release schedule uh, on facebook.com slash bald move and on Twitter at bald move. Just as a heads up, I think we're going to slate these spoiler casts to come out around noon on Friday. And then with a potential of having a special feature for club members where a, a preview of that comes out on Thursday or the video would come out on Thursday for club club bald move members. Can't wait for this weekend to see the new episode. Can't wait for next week for the podcast and the spoiler section until then. Have a good weekend.